The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Today our scripture is from Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Um, In your pew Bible, that's page 784. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luann. We did it. That's the end of Matthew right there. two, Two weeks in a row I keep kicking this rug. Um, hey, I wish there was like um, a Pentecost uh, like version of He is Risen. It's like, He is with us. He is with us indeed. Um, but there's not. But if you can like make one up and we can pass it on and we can liturgize it. That's not a word, but it should be. Um, pass it on. The, the fact that the Holy Spirit is with us is a stunning reality. He's with us all the time, just like Jesus is risen all the time. We get to celebrate that all the time. But when we think about Pentecost, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It really should be a stunning kind of thought. Uh, while we were kind of taking time to pray for the services beforehand, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, I'm with you, I'm in you, and I'm through you. And, uh, and I was just thinking about that, that he's with us, the, the, the nearness of God, the friendship with God that we get to experience, that he's in us, that the God of the universe through the Spirit has made us home in us through the work of Christ is stunning to me stunning to me, and that he works through us, that he works through all of us, that he's given us gifts to serve and to love, uh, not just the body of Christ, but the world itself uh, is, a, is a crazy thing, that the presence of God would be with us, would be in us, and would work through us is, is a, an incredible thought. And so even as we wrap up the Gospel of Matthew this morning after our three-plus-year journey um, through this Gospel narrative, I want to just take a moment again and pause before the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is with us, the presence of God himself, the Spirit of Jesus, is with us. So let's pray that Jesus would actually meet us, remind us of his presence, and work in power among us today. Would you pray with me? Now, Jesus, we, we pause right now to say thank you. Thank you um, for who you are, for showing us in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, for showing us the nature of God, for being this perfect image of God, for showing us the holiness and the mercy the strength and the meekness, the love, the compassion, the justice, the humility and the boldness, the power of God, and the sacrificial, servant-hearted love of God. Thank you. We thank you for your death on the cross, for our sins. Thank you for atonement. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for making us clean through your death on the cross. And then thank you for the new life you've given us through the resurrection. It's a gift to be able to step into this space knowing that new life is available for those who follow you. And then we thank you for the Holy Spirit that we're not alone this morning, 
that we don't have to kind of muster up kind of schemes or manipulate emotions, that we can actually come here to your presence and say, God is with us. God, would you work in power this morning? As we spend time in the close of the Gospel of Matthew, as we learn more about you, as we learn about the mission you've given us, would you fill us up with an awareness of your presence and your power this morning and help us to live in light of it, to step into the power that you've given us in the person of the Spirit and to be bold with the mission you have for us as your people. And so we need you, Holy Spirit. Would you help us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Where were you on January 26th, 2020? Some of you were, were here on that day. That was the beginning of our series through the Gospel of Matthew. How many of you were here on January 26, 2020? It's good. Very few of you. It was maybe like 60% of the 9 a.m. service, uh, less than that of the 11, which is what I anticipated. In January 26 of 2020, we launched in our three-year, four-month, and two-day series through the Gospel of Matthew. Not that anybody's counting, but that's what it is. Uh, technically, I just asked Siri how long ago that was, and that's, that's the answer. Um, three years, four months, and two days. A lot of life has happened in three years, four months, and two days. My guess is your life looked different three years, four months, and two days ago. I know mine did. A lot has changed in our world, right? COVID happened. For my family, we got a dog in that time and had a baby in that time. And also had multiple grandparents pass away in that time. Went through really beautiful moments in that time. Went through really painful moments in that time. Our church kind of went scattered around the city and then regathered in that time. We've had beautiful experiences as a church and painful experiences as a church. And the same would be true for your life. In three years, four months, and two days, you've gone through things. Beautiful moments and painful moments. And as I was reflecting on this last night, I was really emotional thinking about closing up the Gospel of Matthew because for three years, four months, and two days, every week, this, this Gospel narrative has had like a, a place in my life. I've met with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew for the past several years on a regular basis, and we've been spending time in this together as a church family for the past several years. And as much as life changes and as many beautiful moments as there have been and will be, and as much as there have been painful moments in your past and will be in your future, the word of the Lord continues and remains forever, and it bears fruit among us. And I've just been thinking about how God has met us and how God has met me through this series. It was on that Sunday, on January 26, 2020, that we began our, our journey through the Gospel of Matthew with a genealogy. And I'm one of those weirdos that likes genealogies, uh, just because anytime something feels weird or boring, and I'm like, they decided to use pages of Scripture for this. It just is like intriguing. It draws me in. Like, I wonder what's here. And, uh, and in the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, we are in- introduced to Jesus in a way that Matthew puts together to kind of present him as a king, as this incredible king, the long-awaited king of Israel. And we talked about that. His own lineage had unique moments in it, unique experiences, came from really humble origins. Uh, And he's presented as an offspring of the son of David, and he's also presented as an offspring of Abraham, this long-awaited king of Israel through whom all the nations of the earth would experience blessing, that that the presence of God would be restored in earth through this person, Jesus, this King Jesus. And so for three years, four months, and two days, we've been spending time learning what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is king? 
And what does it mean that his kingdom is available for all people, all nations, all over the world? What, what does that mean? What kind of king is Jesus? What does it mean to be a part of his kingdom? What does it mean to follow him? What is he like? What, what is his kingdom like? What does it mean to be a part of this movement of Christ establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? And so as we wrap up the story uh, in this gospel account, I don't want us to approach it mere as, like, uh, as merely like another sermon or another passage, it is a conclusion of a story, right? You wouldn't like pick up the the seventh Harry Potter and just read it as a standalone thing. It's not gonna make any sense. You're gonna be like, what is a horcrux? Like you need need to read the rest of the story to get there, and you should. It's a great story. Or if you prefer to use like christian stuff, we'll say Lord of the Rings. You don't don't read the last Lord of the Rings or the last Battle of Narnia uh, without reading the rest of the story. This this conclusion of Matthew is pulling threads together. As much as we have preached on and talked about the Great Commission several times as a church family, our whole mission statement is based around the Great Commission. As we approach it this time, I want us to approach it as the conclusion of a story that's pulling together these literary themes and theological ideas that are profound and transformative. And so we're going to highlight this morning some aspects of this, these last few verses in Matthew that we don't typically highlight. I'm going to lead us into some uncomfortable theological territory uh, just to make you uneasy, uh, which is also uh, just a, a great uh, joy of mine regularly uh, to bring us face-to-face with hard things in Scripture. And I think, I think what God has for us this morning is profound. At, at the heart of the Great Commission is this incredible truth, and it's kind of the the truth that'll shape our whole time, that Jesus is king, and he's on a mission to rescue and restore the world through ordinary people like you and me. That's what's being established in this passage. Jesus is king, and he's on a mission to rescue and restore the world, the whole world, people from all nations, through ordinary people like you and me. And for us to kind of understand the thrust of what's happening, I want to back way up. Again, in those early chapters of Matthew that we started, you know, almost three and a half years ago, it it begins to lay its foundation as Jesus is king, and and it brings this question. Matthew essentially raises the question from the beginning of what kind of king is Jesus? Because he's different than the people of Israel expected. And he's not expected to kind of live and act in a way that he did, nor was his death anything that's anticipated by the people of Israel. And so he presents the whole thing as Jesus as God with us, who's come to save his people from their sins. And you're, and you're asking this question as the narrative unfolds, how's he doing that? And so Jesus, right out of the gates, when his public ministry begins, he's baptized, he's filled up with the Holy Spirit, empowered for the mission that God's given him as a son of God, as the perfect human par excellence, this perfect image of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, in submission to the Father, and radiating the the glory of God on the earth everywhere he goes. And so he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately he goes into this wilderness moment. And we're going to come back to this later, but the wilderness is a really significant thing in the Gospel of Matthew. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, which is kind of like hearkening back to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness after they left the, the, um, their slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea out to 40 years in the wilderness. So Jesus is declared the Son of God, comes through the waters of baptism, 40 days in the wilderness. And he's depending on the power of the Spirit. He's trusting in the presence of the Spirit. But where Israel failed and where humanity as a whole has failed, Jesus succeeded. See, Satan, this spiritual opponent, a spiritual adversary, a spiritual enemy, comes into this scene and he begins to tempt Jesus to grasp for kingdom, comfort, pleasure on his own terms, 
away from the reign of the Father, not with dependence on the Spirit. And Jesus, over and over and over again, defends himself, his own heart. He's victorious over Satan again and again. But the final temptation of, this, of the Satan is a fascinating moment where the Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me and I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. And it's interesting because you have to ask the question, wait, who has the kingdoms of the earth? And in the biblical narrative, it is spiritual powers of darkness that exercise legitimate influence over the kingdoms, the nations of this earth. And Jesus could in that moment fall down and worship Satan and essentially do what humans did in the very beginning, which is grasp for our own comfort, our own glory, our own strength, our own power, our own identity on our own terms apart from God. Or he could reject that and say, which was what he did say, that you should worship the Lord God only and him alone shall you serve. And so he rejects Satan's offer to grasp at that power, at that authority in his own terms, and instead he humbles himself and follows the leadership of his father through the power of the Spirit. And we watch that unfold then for the next three years of his life, which we've spent three years in as a church family. And in this time, you're seeing him establish a kingdom that's a sort of an upside-down kingdom. That's why we have this crown upside-down. It's not what people expected. Immediately he starts welcoming into the kingdom not the religious elite, not the super intelligent, not the wealthy, not the powerful. He starts welcoming in anyone who will admit their need and turn to him in dependence. The sick, the outsiders, the marginalized, the foreigners, the refugees, the hurting, the poor, those who feel like they're trapped in sin, those who society has kicked to the edges. They start turning to him and all of a sudden his kingdom starts getting populated by a sort of upside down people group and he starts teaching them an upside down way of the kingdom that in his kingdom it's not about power grabbing it's not about self-exaltation it's not about climbing the ladder it's not about building your own life it's about humbly offering your life in service to others it's about loving your enemies it's about forgiving those who have wronged you it's about being generous to the needy it's about being salt and light in the world by the way you love other people it's about expressing the love that God has for you through your life to other people and he teaches a sort of upside down kingdom ethic it's about self-giving love. It's about sacrifice. It's about service. That his kingdom is established not by a group of people trying to gain their influence and push power struggles through the world, but actually about offering their lives in service to the world. That's how his kingdom moves forward. It's subversive, it's counterintuitive, and it's been moving forward like that. And so you watch it work out with Jesus. As people turn to him, they're experiencing redemption and transformation and healing. Demons are getting cast out. And his 12 followers is this ragtag crew, along with a, a larger community, but the 12, the 12 disciples, this ragtag crew of just surprising people. Most of them not the most educated bunch, most of them struggling in different ways in their own story, but they've all turned to him and are demonstrating that the kingdom of Jesus isn't for the religious elite, the put-togethers. It's for the people that come and say, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need healing. I need life. I need someone outside of me to restore me. But we've watched all through the story that their followers struggle to understand the nature of things. And so as they're struggling, he's continuing to teach them the nature of his kingdom and how his kingdom moves forward throughout time. And as he continues to kind of grow his influence in people, as people are coming to him more and more, the religious leaders begin to oppose him. You see this kind of big separation happen where the religious elite see Jesus as a threat. And so we've been looking for the past, really, year about this rising tension between the religious elite and Jesus, which culminates in his final week of his life when he makes his way to Jerusalem and finally embraces his role that, yes, I am the king, but I'm a different kind of king than Israel expected. 
And so not only is he teaching and inviting other people in, he's actually challenging those who are oppressing others with religious kind of systems of self-righteousness and self-exalted righteousness. He's challenging it and actually warns the people of Israel that if they don't turn, judgment is coming upon the people of Israel. And so finally, the leaders have had enough and they decide to execute Jesus. They hand him over to the Romans and he's crucified. And yet, as another expression of the upside-down kingdom, it is the death of Jesus which is his exaltation. It's his sacrificial death on the cross, which isn't just a, a tragedy of injustice, though it was a tragedy of injustice. It was actually Jesus laying down his life, offering his own life, shedding his blood to forgive humanity of our sins, to atone for our sins so he could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And then through his resurrection to establish a new life, a new kingdom, a new world where people can be not just forgiven, but restored and transformed and changed. And so we've been looking at that for three and a half years, and it brings us right here to the very end and say, I wonder how Matthew is going to end. Now, we're familiar with the passage. We're familiar with the Great Commission. But when you think about it as the end of a story, I want you to imagine Matthew sitting around and thinking, all right, I've told this story. I need to wrap it up. How am I going to wrap it up? Mark likely had already written his gospel. We're not even totally sure how the gospel of Mark ends. You can read about this in footnotes in your Bible. We're not sure what, what, what the ending is. Is it an abrupt ending or do we just lose the ending or what, what happened exactly? But Mark's ends with the disciples hearing about the risen Jesus and they're afraid. And then there's some like additional notes that are added on to the end to kind of like wrap up the story that we, we don't think are a part of the original story. And so you can read about that. But the sense of like, he ends it like that. John ends his gospel narrative with a conversation between the risen Christ and John the apostle and then Peter. And Matthew's deciding how to end his story. And he decides he's going to end it with that climactic moment of Jesus on the hills in Galilee with the 11 disciples launching their missionary movement to see that the good news of the kingdom of God who's come through Jesus spread to all nations and all peoples everywhere. And so we pick up there, Matthew chapter 28. We'll pick up in verse 16. We'll make our way through this again, just highlighting a few things as we, as we make our way through. Um, and again, I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful and profound, profound story. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, says this. If I can get there. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Remember, Jesus had instructed the two Marys, the Marys that were there at the resurrection, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And so this is sometime later, they've journeyed up there. He's appeared to a different people, different people in different moments. But this is his appearance to the 11 altogether, where he will give them this final commission, this mission he has for them as a people. It says this, verse 17. And when they saw him, when the 11 saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that Matthew includes this. He didn't have to. He didn't have to include this, but he did. And it brings us to our first kind of observation that Jesus loves to work through ordinary people to showcase his extraordinary grace. When Matthew is pinning these last moments, he decides to add in there, like Jesus appears to them and they all worshiped. It says when he appeared to them, they all worshiped. They're like, He's alive. This is crazy. It means he's the king. It means he's God in the flesh. It means he's the son of God. It means he's the Messiah. It means the world is changing. It means all these things. He could have said, and when we saw him, we worshiped him. But he went ahead and said, and some doubted. Like some of us had a hard time. Some of us didn't get it. Some of us struggled with this. 
which I think is an incredible gift. What Matthew has done over and over and over is not kind of like whitewash the failures of the leaders of the early church, but he continues to highlight the weakness and the struggles of, and the sin and, and the difficulties of the leaders of the early church. And that's been the way that God has worked throughout history. It's not through these elite people that have it all figured out together, uh, have it all figured out, and they know everything and can do everything, have the right strategies and the right tactics and the right resilience and, and kind of take the world by storm. It's always through broken, weak, sinful, struggling, doubting people like us. It's through people like us. That's a profile of the whole biblical story. You will not find the people of God ever come out looking like heroic They'll continue to come out looking like broken, struggling, wandering, sinful, weak, doubtful, inconsistent people. And it's through the people of the Bible and through the history of the church that God is transforming and healing the world. That's so liberating to me that I don't have to pretend like I'm a superhero and you don't either. We don't have to be perpetually like looking for a human being to like have it all together to be this example of at least they've made it. Instead, we can all embrace as humans that we all have issues. We all struggle. We all doubt. We all wander. Matthew says it here. Some of us, these 11 through whom God would launch the early church movement, we saw him risen face to face. We worshiped him, but some of us doubted. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of this famous, uh, I say famous, this Ray Ortland quote I read that I, I love. I think it's fantastic. He said this. He said, here's a simple gospel mantra always to keep in mind. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. Like, this is available for everybody. You can be a total idiot, have an incredibly bright future. That's like, it's available because Jesus died for people that are like complete idiots like me. I've got a big mouth. I say lots of words, and when you say lots of words, you sin lots. That's just like, a, they, those, it's a proverb. It's a genuine proverb. It's a, it's a genuine, the more words you say, the more sinful, uh, you know, you will show yourself to be. And so I, 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 I sin a lot with my mouth. And, uh, and it's humbling. It's, honestly, if I, I, in moments, it's, it's embarrassing to me. I feel shame around it sometimes, just my big mouth. I, I talk before I think often. And I, I often feel like, man, I'm a total idiot. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a total idiot. And to, to know that Jesus died and laid down his life for people like me is so liberating that I can grow and learn to control my tongue over time and that he's not like angry and constantly disappointed and when will you get your act together? You can't be useful until you've like figured it out, until you're like perfectly righteous. And I'm on a journey and you're on a journey and he uses people on their journey. I think that's awesome. How beautiful that he used these followers on their journey with their doubts to be a part of what he was doing in the world. It showcases his extraordinary grace. It showcases the meaning of what he had accomplished on the cross to atone for our sins, to forgive us and to bring us into his family, not by our works, but by his grace alone. And I celebrate that, and I think it's a beautiful way that Matthew highlights his own brokenness as he wraps up this gospel story. I'm going to move on. Next verse, look with me, verse 18. This one's wild. We're going to slow down a little bit on it. It says this, And Jesus came, and he said to them, these, these worshipful doubters, these doubting worshipers, he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we read the Great Commission, we often either start in the next verse, go therefore and make disciples. We start there and ignore this part. Or we're like, yeah, 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 Jesus is in charge. He's got authority. So go make disciples. And we, and we rarely slow down on this. But I want us to slow down because it is weird and awesome. Uh, but it's going to stretch you a little bit. It's going to stretch you. So the kind of way I'm going to frame this whole time is, is this kind of governing point that Jesus has the power to set people free. He has the power to set people free. But what he's freeing people from isn't merely human sin. He's also freeing people from spiritual captivity. Spiritual captivity. That human beings aren't just kind of like autonomous, kind of like sinners that exist in a kind of a spiritually dead, materialistic world where there's a singular spiritual being called God, and we kind of do our own things. There are also in our world, in our experience, spiritual powers that interact with us in our human experience, but they're not visible. They're invisible. They're a part of what Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser, called the unseen realm. Uh, Michael Heiser is an incredible theologian, Hebrew scholar that I really have appreciated. He actually passed away a couple weeks ago, and he, and he talks about, and wants to take a moment, this idea of cosmic geography. Does that sound fun? I think it sounds kind of fun. Cosmic geography. What is cosmic geography? Well, we have, we have governing structures in our sort of geopolitical like, framework in the visible world. So you can kind of look at the, what are the boundaries of Denver? We can look at the boundaries of Denver and there are governing bodies, human governing bodies that kind of oversee the kind of governance and the kind of politics of Denver and even little regions around Denver. And there are governing bodies that oversee the state of Colorado. And you could talk about the boundaries of Colorado. There are governing bodies that oversee the, the, the nation. You can talk about the boundaries of the nation. And we in our society get to participate in who those are and who they're not. And so we see their names show up on ballots and you see them come to power and fall out of power and we get to see that. We, we understand governance. We understand governmental structures. In the visible realm. Did you know that in the biblical worldview, there's also governmental structure in the unseen realm? Weird. It's weird. Uh, Because we as Westerners that tend to be more into a materialistic worldview, and I mean kind of like philosophical materialism, uh, as a Christian, we, we come in, we're like, I guess there's an invisible God. We're good with that. And there's something called angels, a little weird. Something called demons, a little odd. Something called the devil, Satan, something like that. Like, there's something there. But the people that get into that make me uncomfortable. And I'm about to get into that. So I'm about to make you uncomfortable. Um, because there's way more to it in the biblical worldview. But because it's weird, we kind of glance over this, the sections of Scripture that draw attention. And I actually think the significance of what Jesus is doing on his mission and the power available to set people free makes way more sense when you understand the kind of reality, the unseen realities that we're engaged in right here and right now in our very existence in this moment. And so I want to take you on a little tour of some weird Bible passages um, to help make sense of what this is. I'm going to start, we'll have some of these on the screen with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. I want you to have in your mind, again, the Satan in the wilderness saying to Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these nations, all of these kingdoms as yours. And Jesus says, no. He doesn't say, they're not yours, they're mine. He says, no, that's not the way I'm going to reclaim the nations of this world. I'm going to reclaim them differently. I'm going to reclaim them differently. But it is a reclamation project. It is Jesus reclaiming the nations, nations that have been delegated to 
spiritual beings that exercise influence over different cultures in different times and different spaces. You're like, that's weird. All right, let's look at the Bible because that's where we're getting it from. I didn't make it up. It says this, verse 8, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It says, when the Most High, speaking of the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself, when he gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, now this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel in the wilderness, helping them understand a nature of their reality. They're walking into pagan territories that worship different kinds of gods. They're experiencing the Philistines and the Amalekites, and they've come out of Egypt, and all of them worship their different gods, and they're engaging in this new land. They're going to be called to go into a place that is the Lord's, and the Lord is going to claim this this people and this place as the launching pad of his mission to reclaim the whole world for his glory. That's what's going to happen. So look at what it says. It says this, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Now this is referring to what happened at Babel. If the people, uh, human beings were one kind of basic people group at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, there's a story of humanity trying to exalt their name to the heavens apart from the reign of God and God as a discipline and actually to slow down the progress of humanity apart from his reign. He scatters the nations. He scatters the peoples, gives them different languages and different regions of this earth and different cultural experiences that formed in that space that make up a lot of the way we think about the nature of the world today in the visible realm. Here, Moses refers to the invisible realm. He says this, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The sons of God throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament is a reference to these spiritual beings. We'll come back to it, you'll see it again in a moment. But these spiritual beings, these spiritual authorities, these principalities, these powers, So it says this, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, or the children of Jacob, that's the the nation of Israel, his allotted heritage. He's saying at Babel, all the nations got scattered. And they got scattered according to the number of the sons of God. That there are spiritual leaders with a geographical governing authority that has been delegated to them by the Lord Almighty in different cultures and in different times. You're like, that is way outside of my box. It is, but it's also not. Just think about history. Think about culture. Think about different religions that pop up and are formed all over the place. Are these gods that are co-equal to the, the one true God? No, these are created spiritual beings. But in the biblical story, a number of created spiritual beings rebelled against the authority of the creator, just like humans rebelled against the authority of the creator. Where did the Satan come from in the Garden of Eden? Where did this spiritual rebel come from? That it says in the scriptures that the Satan and a third of the spiritual beings rebelled against him. And as humanity in their own sin, following the deceptive ideas of the accuser that came into the garden with these lies and these accusations, they turned away from God and God said, in that sin, you're exiled from my presence. You're pushed east of Eden and east of Eden. You're in a wilderness that is not free of spiritual realities. It's just populated by spiritual rebels that exercise influence. And so when Babel happens, it's scattered. And so now when you think about people worshiping different gods, it's not always like, that's fake, that's fake, that's fake. What if it's not fake? What if there are more spiritual powers at work in our universe than you tend to think about? That's the biblical worldview. You're like, I don't know, Gary, it's one verse there, it's kind of hard. All right, Psalm 82, Psalm 82. Psalm 82 verse 1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. What's the divine council? This unseen reality, spiritual beings in the throne room of God in the heavenly spaces. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods 
the Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He's rebuking the unseen spiritual beings for their unjust, corrupt leadership and influence over different peoples and times. Why is it that injustice continues to populate our world and the nations and the experience? Why is it nation that war against nation and striving and we're all trying to kind of build ourselves up? Why within nations is there so much inequity and oppression and injustice? Because the unjust spiritual beings exercise unjust influence and it plays to human sin And humanity sins against God and continues this. God is rebuking those spiritual beings for their unjust influence over the nations, their unjust governance. This is weird, Gary. I know, let's keep going. Verse six, I said, this is the Lord, you are God's. Sons of the Most High. Remember that? Sons of God from Deuteronomy 32. You are God's. Sons of the Most High. All of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist cries out, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's saying, sure, in this time and in this space, there are spiritual beings that deceive humanity, not just in eastern spaces or not just in sub-Saharan Africa, here and now in Denver, Colorado, spiritual beings that are tempting you to reject the reign of God in any which way they can. Clever, deceptive, thoughtful, intelligent, rebellious beings. So when you give your life over to materialism, when you establish and try to think about it, it's your job to establish your own identity apart from God's, God's love, God's fatherhood as a child of God, but you want to make your own name and find your own worth apart from him and do it your own way and figure out who I am. And I'm going to build my life up through my security. I'm going to build my life up through my relationships. I'm going to chase comfort and pleasure. These aren't just like your acts. They are, and we are culpable beings. There's lies. There's lies. John Mark Comer in his, uh, in his book on these realities talks about deceptive ideas, these spiritual beings that give deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires and they get normalized in societies. That's always been the way it is. Deceptive ideas by spiritual beings that play to human, humanity's sinful heart that get normalized in sy- systems and cultured. That's the way it is. And that's what's happening right now. And so when we're kind of just like, addicted to our own economic growth as if our economic growth is going to like give us joy in life and help us establish a sense of self. That's a lie. And it's not just like a a neutral thing. There's spiritual power involved in that stuff. Spiritual power. And so we're going to keep going and keep tracking. You're like, this is so weird. It is awesome. Daniel chapter 7. Look at at what this says. Daniel chapter 7. So it's into that environment that the New Testament also speaks to. We'll talk about it. There's a promise that God is going to send someone to rescue the nations and reclaim them for himself. So in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is in Babylon. He's an Israelite in a faraway land in exile in Babylon, and he's given a vision into the unseen realm, into the invisible realm. And it says this, Daniel 7 verse 9. And as I looked, Daniel's saying this, as I looked, I'm, I'm given this vision. Thrones, plural, thrones were placed in the invisible realm. And the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh himself. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him in the invisible realm. A thousand thousands. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So this incredible multitude that's before him. And then it says this, the court sat in judgment. Who's that? That's that divine council. 
these spiritual beings. They sit down on these thrones, these, these places from which they've wielded authority. They come before God, they, they've sat down, and it says, and the books were open. And into this scene, something incredible happens, and Jesus has referred to it over and over and over again in his ministry. Verse 13 says this, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, so one like a, in a human form, in the unseen realm, with all these spiritual beings, one like a son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. He didn't come from the clouds down to earth. He came with the clouds in the heavenly space before the throne of the ancient of days. And he comes before the ancient of days, and it says, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, should worship him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And what Jesus says again and again and again, even in his trial in the house of Caiaphas, we looked at a couple weeks ago, he says, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see it. It's about to happen. I'm about to be presented before the ancient of days. I'm about to be given authority over all people, all nations, all languages, not just on the visible realm, but also in the visible realm. And I'm about to build a kingdom from all people, all nations, all ethnicities. I'm about to build a kingdom that will not fail. The kingdoms of this earth will rise and fall and rise and fall. This kingdom that the Son of Man will build will never fail. And he has authority to establish it. And so when Jesus says, all authority in the heavenly realm and on the earthly realm has been given to me, so go make disciples. What he's saying is, I have authority to set people free. I have the power to free people from these idolatries that keep destroying themselves and through which they are destroying others. I have the power to rescue people from materialism. I have the power to rescue people from paganism. I have the power to rescue people from secularism. I have the power to rescue people from their addictions, from their pain, from their sin, from their, I have all the authority to rescue people. So I'm sending you out there to get after the business of rescuing people from every nation so I can establish a kingdom that will never fail, that will never fade. And so that's like theological like mind stretchers, I get it. But what it means is like you live in a world where there are spiritual powers at play. What have you needed to be set free from in your life? My guess is there are lots of stories of people being set free. What do you still need to be set free from in this life? He has the power to do that. He has the power not just to set you free, but to set your neighbors free, and your coworkers free, and your classmates free, and your mom, or your dad, or your brother, or your sister, or your children. He has the power to set people free from every nation. He has power, even in the heavenly realm, to bind up these spiritual beings and rescue captives, to redeem humanity. It's this word redemption, to set people free. Is it from our own sin? 100% yes. But we sin in a world that is full of spiritual powers. It's not neutral. And he has the power to rescue and redeem the whole world. I think it's an incredible, incredible thing. And it lays a foundation for everything he's going to say. And the New Testament authors will reflect on this in places like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says this, Paul, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's a spiritual being. The spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were running, doing our thing, and we were being influenced by the spirit of the, of the age. We were being influenced by spiritual beings, the prince of the power of the air. We were being influenced. We were dead. And through the gospel of Jesus, you can be made alive. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. Even as we talk about going out into this world, Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the secularists, the Republicans, the Democrats, the people who voted stand against the schemes of those people that are trying to ruin our nation. The devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, listen, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's called us out there, not as like people that are supposed to cower and be afraid, but man, put on the helmet of salvation. Grab the breastplate of righteousness. Get the shield of faith. Get your feet ready with the, with the good news. Grab the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and get out there. But don't be ignorant that you're not in a neutral world. But I want to set people free. Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians saying, pray for me because I'm out in some pagan world and I need you to pray because I'm, I'm in the battle. But he also says, you're in the battle. And the work of Christ on the cross was that final nail in the coffin of those spiritual powers. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 says this through 15. Same theme of being dead in our sin. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Forgives us. How does he just forgive us? He says it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So all of our sin, what it warranted is rebellion from God's exile, from God's presence. This debt. And how do we get reconciled to God's presence? Well, we need that debt to be canceled. And so he's forgiven us of that debt. He's canceled that debt. How did he do that? He says it right here. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus atoned for it. He paid the penalty. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that's the spiritual entities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That what the devil and what these spiritual beings entice us with is lies to try to get love, try to get power, try to get control on our own terms. Then once we've bought into those lies, these accusations, God would never love you. He would never welcome you. He'll never forgive you. If the people around you knew what you did or if you're honest about it, God's, you're always going to be second rate. And no, no, that, that debt has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. Sin and death are no more. You're free to come right in. That means they have no power over you anymore. He has authority to set people free. Which brings us to the mission he gives us in that context. In a, in a world where Jesus is reclaiming the nations, he's calling people from every nation back to himself, he gives us this mission, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And as our final point is that our mission 
is to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. If you've heard that before, it's because it's our mission as a church. We just got it from here. We just said Jesus gave us the mission, so that's going to be our mission. We have a mission to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And that's what Jesus commissions his people. He says, I have the power to reclaim the world, to rescue people and to restore people. So go, I'm using you. It's through ordinary people like you with all your doubts and struggles and sin and difficulties and and weaknesses. I'm using people like you to go into the world to see people reconciled to my presence and transformed by the power of my spirit to be who I created humanity to be. To make disciples of people from all nations. This idea of making disciples isn't just like teaching people stuff in their head. It's not about a program. It's inviting people to follow Jesus. To turn to Jesus as the son of God who laid down his life for us, for our sins, who rose again on the third day, and who's calling us to follow him, his way of life. We, we often will focus on this kind of going. You'll hear this like in a missions conference or maybe in a missionary sermon about going overseas. We, we want people to go overseas. We're, we're supposed to reach all nations, and that requires going. But the going isn't the imperative in the Greek. The going is a participle. It's as you're going, make disciples. The imperative is go make, disi- make disciples. As you're going to work tomorrow, go there with gospel intentionality. Go, know, go there knowing that Jesus sent you to your workplace to be a part of what he's doing, to spread the good news of his kingdom, and to see people rescued from powers of darkness. As you're interacting with your kids tomorrow, go into those moments intentional and thoughtful about making disciples. As you go back to your house with your roommates, go there as you're going, be about pointing people to Jesus with whatever gifts he's given you. As you go into your neighborhoods, you don't just like live in a neighborhood surrounded by other people that just like kind of live in a different vacuum in your little bubbles of the neighborhood. You live in a neighborhood surrounded by people. As you're going there, think about your neighbors as people that Jesus might want to rescue. You're not the rescuer. You're not the Messiah. You're also somebody that's experienced rescue. You have your issues still. We have our issues still. And so we're not going there as the healer. We're not going there as the fixer. We're not going there as the Messiah. We're going there as D.A. Carson famously said it, one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. Like, I, this leads to pain and death. I get it. I feel it. I struggle with it. I have my own doubts. But Jesus, Jesus, I want to, I want to tell you about Jesus. We get to make disciples of people as we're going about our business, as we're going through the ups and downs and the difficulties. Yes, sometimes he calls people to new places, and that's important. I grew up in Kansas City. I felt called to come make disciples in Denver, Colorado. My wife and I together felt called to come make disciples here. This isn't where we're from. We felt called to come here to make disciples here. Many of you are here because God called you here. You might not, might not have felt like a, a missionary calling, but you're still called to be here as long as he has you here. He might call some of you, and we pray that he would, to go to new places, new neighborhoods, new nations, new cities, new states. But we're all called to be about making disciples, all of us. He says, make disciples of all nations, of all ethnicities. That means going to new places, new geographical spaces, but it also means paying attention to the people that are different from you right here, in your own life, at your own workplace, in your own neighborhood, at your own school, at your kid's school. When Jesus came, he's bringing and reconciling people from all languages, all ethnicities, all cultures, and it means his gospel, his kingdom, breaks down boundaries, breaks down barriers. And the call for his people is to to cross those barriers. 
Those barriers exist because people try to protect their own way of thinking, their own value systems, their own value sets. Jesus kind of levels a playing field and says, you all need mercy and grace. And if you've experienced that, then you can break right through those barriers as a humble learner, a listener, a lover, a servant-hearted person that just wants to love other people, care for other people, and help other people find Jesus. And that means thinking about the neighbors that don't look like you, the neighbors who don't value the same things you value, the neighbors who voted differently than you voted, the family members who are different than you, the people across the tracks or on the other side of the street, the people on the other side of the city. We're supposed to care about seeing the gospel move past these barriers. We can talk about that here on stage, but unless we do it in our lives as a church, as a church, unless you and I together start saying, I'm going to cross those boundaries, not as a hero to rescue people, but as a, a lover, as a learner, as somebody that's there to, to care for others and take interest in others and care about the interests and the experiences of others. That's how the gospel moves across barriers, through humility and servant-hearted love. We're called to take the gospel to all nations. That's all ethnicities, all people. The gospel is breaking down barriers. It's beautiful. And what this discipleship is, often people think about it just as like evangelism. It's just seeing people prayer, prayer, something like that. Or maybe it's a program, signing people up for the nine-month discipleship program. What is a disciple? Well, Jesus says it here. He gives two imperatives or two participles to explain it. Baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. The first is this expression of our union with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That when someone's baptized, they're saying, hey, the me that was running away from you and didn't trust you and was doing things my own way, maybe irreligiously or even religiously doing my own thing apart from relationship with you, I'm turning from that and I'm admitting that my self-righteousness wasn't working or my kind of, my kind of just like pursuit of joy and all my own terms and all my own pleasures, my own way. Neither of these things, they're both leading me to death and I'm coming to you for forgiveness and for life. And the expression of that trust is baptism. Say that way of living is dead and this new person is coming out committed to Jesus. Perfect? No. Without fault or failure? No. Weakness, struggles, temptations, doubts, difficulties, sin struggles. But I'm committed to Jesus. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to trust him. That's baptism. That we're reconciled to God by grace. And then it's learning or teaching them to, to know all the information that is available in my Bible. Teaching them high-level theology. Teaching them about cosmic geography. Uh, no, teaching them to, to observe, to live, to actually live according to the way of Jesus, everything he commanded. There's this new version of like um, gospel-centeredness that's emerging. I, we talk about gospel-centered theology, gospel-centered church all the time as a people. The gospel is the center of everything we do. But a gospel-centeredness that doesn't give room for the imperatives of Jesus and the commands of Jesus is more gospel-centered than Jesus was, uh, which is a problem. Jesus gave commands. He told us how to live. And being a disciple is saying, yes, I've trusted in you by grace alone, through faith alone. I'm, I'm united to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And now I get this whole life of learning, learning to follow the way of Jesus, learning how to interact with people that I disagree with the way Jesus did, learning how to love people and serve people the way Jesus did, learning how to offer forgiveness the way Jesus did, Learning how to have humility the way Jesus did. 
Learning how to operate with people that are insiders like Jesus did. Learning how to engage with and operate around outsiders, whatever that means in your experience, like Jesus did. I get to learn to do this the way Jesus did. And we get to do that together. So here's how we say it as a church, our definition. A disciple is someone who's been reconciled to God by grace and is learning to be with Jesus and follow his way of life. That's what we get to do. We get to grow in that together and we can help other people grow in that with whatever gifts he's given you. As you're living, when you text that person later on today to say, hey, I was thinking about you, I prayed for you, you're participating in the mission of God. When you love your neighbor and you're kind to them and you're a light in your neighborhood and trying to serve and care about the needs of others around you, you're participating in the mission of God. When you show up on a Sunday and say, I'm gonna grow together, I'm gonna worship Jesus together, and I'm gonna gather together with this family, you're participating in the mission of God. When you go into your small group or your Bible study or wherever you're kind of doing midweek things to spend time with community, you're participating in the mission of God, which with whatever gifts he's given you. And it's through the ordinary stuff like this that God has been rescuing and restoring the world. It's wild. And if you begin to hear this mission and it gets overwhelming, I get so encouraged by what Matthew decided to end his whole story with. And Matthew's saying, how do I want to close my gospel? I know. That promise he made. I wonder if that promise was a treasure to Matthew. When Rome came and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, when Matthew saw his friends getting martyred, when he was maybe tossed in prison, when he was getting disowned by his community, maybe a bunch of his childhood friends that are pushing him out in ways, new ways. When he's feeling antagonism from the Romans and antagonism from the Jews, when he's feeling all of that, I wonder if this promise was like his place because he ends his whole story with a promise, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I bet that was a treasure for Matthew. That's been a treasure for me to know right now, right here, he's with you. As you drive home today or bike home or walk home, he's with you. When you lay your head on the pillow tonight, he's with you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, he's right there, he's with you. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you take that final, as you engage with kids, as you engage with colleagues, as you engage with spouses, he's with you. He's with you all the way to the end of the age. There will be an end to this age. There will be an end to the suffering. There will be an end to the doubting. There will be an end to the pain. There will be an end to the difficulty. All things will be made new. We're getting there. In the meantime, he's with us the whole way while we're participating in what he's doing to rescue and restore the world. I think it's marvelous. It's beautiful. When you make mistakes, he's with you. When you step into those opportunities he gives you, he's with you. May we be a people that learn to enjoy the presence of Christ and the authority of Christ while we participate in the mission he's given us. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift to be invited into the family of God. It's a stunning responsibility to be invited to participate in what God's doing to heal the world. But we're not left to our own devices or our own power. He gives us his presence and his power, but calls us to get get after it, to be a part of what he's doing, to rescue and restore the world. May he help us to do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you even now pour out your spirit on us in this moment, that we may be a people that know your love, that know your nearness, that know your grace, but also that we'd be a people that follow your way, that participate in your mission, in all the places you call us in this world. So thanks for being with us. Would you comfort people even now that you're with them, you love them. Thanks for being gracious and merciful. And thanks for what you've been doing through men and women and children for the past 2,000 years to spread this good news of your kingdom all the way to Denver, Colorado. Help us to be faithful for our part 
in this time, knowing that you're with us all the way to the end. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, I want to actually invite us to stand up before we take communion. We did it. We're done with the Gospel of Matthew, which is wild to me. Um, But I want us to end just with the doxology. Uh, What Jesus promises us here is this promise of his presence, of his power, this incredible grace. And so we're just going to end just thanking God for for his blessings, all these blessings, even the blessing of his word, uh, come from him, from him. And when we sing the doxology, we're reminded that it's not just the creatures here below, but we're joining with these other spiritual beings worshiping Christ for who he is and what he's done. So would you join me as we sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus, thank you so much. Help us to live lives of worship as we follow you together in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.